pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hola, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is a Polish cookbook author that describes herself as a storyteller cook, whose debut cookbook, Polska, the New Polish Cooking, achieved much success. It appeared on, in six languages, and it was selected as one of the best cookbooks of 2016 on BBC's Radio 4, The Food Program. On June 10th of this year, her new book comes out, and it's called Amber and Rye, A Baltic Journey in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. She also has started a supper club called A Slavic Tale, where she wants to challenge perspectives about what East European food is in a fun and tasty way. And finally, after four months of scheduling, we can sit down virtually and talk. Zuzazak, Zak, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, a little bit tired with uh, juggling two children and work and all the other stuff, but yes, in a good mood. How old are they? Uh, one and five. Oh, it's yeah. It's so it's super calm, right? It's a very calm, <laughs> yeah, every day. I'm uh, bribing them to keep quiet while we do this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Two important questions: Have you ever been to Portugal? Um, no, I haven't. I'm, I'm, wait, I think I did actually. Sorry, when I was 14, um, but it was such a long time ago that I it doesn't sort it's of like 10 uh, years ago for you, isn't it? Something like that. No, I'm 41. <laughs> You don't have to say that part. I'll cut that part. Uh, so you went, you were 14. Do you remember anything? Um, I remember the sunshine and I remember lovely seafood, but th that's just about it. <laughs> Do you know any Portuguese words? Uh, obrigado. There you go. Is there any Portuguese word you would you like to know? Are you okay for now? <laughs> um do I know that? I think um, I had a few Brazilian friends, so I did know a few um, Portuguese words. Okay. Um, I was wondering, actually, do you, in Portugal, do you have something which is like a uh, pierogi or something, like the equivalent of something like that? Um, any kind of dump? Every country has its own dumpling, right? Um, I think for us, probably what would be it, but it's fried. Yeah, yeah. So, so we do kind of a dumpling. We call risol, which Americans call turnovers, and we filled with suckling pig, uh, shrimp, uh, vegetarian, and I think that probably it's our thing. Of uh, it's actually very similar to make a shoe pastry, but actually then you just roll the dough. It's a very elastic dough, and then you just you know fill it, and then it's flour, uh, eggs, and bread comes in, you deep fry it. So that will be kind of our dumpling, I think. Yeah. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Risol. So there you go. Perfect. Um, are your parents or grandparents good cooks? Who was doing the cooking more at home growing up? Well, when I was still in Poland, I, I was there until I was aged eight. Uh, my parents were both working. It was communist Poland. So my mum did do some cooking, but she admits herself that really her cooking only really started when we moved to England and she stopped sort of working full time. Um, and my grandmas were doing a lot of the cooking. Um, they were both good cooks but one of them was a great cook because she was actually uh, her cooking was her career so and she had four children who had lots of other children and she would do all the cooking for all the family celebrations and she made beautiful cakes as well even for neighbors celebrations and 
um, and things like that. So she really spent her life cooking. But my other grandma, even though, you know, she compared herself unfavorably to my <laughs> cook grandma, <laughs> yes. um, also had her specialities. And I think that, you know, everyone can have their little specialities that they're the best at. Well, I'm still trying to find out which one is my mom's because everything was so bad that I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's no speciality in that house. Uh, do you remember anything your grandma, one of your grandmas used to make that you haven't quite mastered yet? Hmm. Well, the cook grandma used to make a lot of things that, you know, it's it's very difficult to get the exact taste of that particular dish in that time, you know, in communist yeah. Poland, she used to make her own curd cheese and things like that. Um, so sometimes you sort of think, oh yes, I, I sort of, you know, maybe the technique is right, but maybe all the ingredients aren't, don't make it taste quite the same. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular that I feel like, no, I feel like, you know, because I've had both of these cookbooks, I've really worked through a lot of the family recipes. So I, I, I do feel like I've got them down. <laughs> Just realized what it is that I can't do. Oh, like okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I can see in my mind a great big wedding cake. You know, she really specialized in those massive tiered cakes with the marzipan flowers and all the decorations. I cannot do that. Okay. And okay. she was an so she was an amazing baker. But what she did was she never measured anything. And I cook like that as well. But I can't. But for me, the baking is like, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't if I don't measure things. She never measured anything and she would make those incredible celebratory cakes. Yeah. How did growing up in a culture that, that has been through so much and you having experienced that hardship yourself influenced who you are today? Oh gosh, I think there's, you know, two sides of it. So there's definitely um, the positive side where you appreciate things like food which perhaps you know people that have always had plenty of food their whole lives maybe don't quite appreciate the fact that sometimes things are very difficult to get hold of and and even though we always had more more than enough because we all shared and we grew stuff um there was always that kind of anxiety there like how are we going to get this And, oh, we need to find a person who knows someone and who knows someone else. There was a lot of kind of enterprise and a lot of sort of trying to work things out, not just sort of going to the shop and getting it. Um, so I think there's that kind of positive side of appreciation. But um, I think on the other side, there's also um, something that I'm really, I struggle with sometimes is an element of paranoia that um comes from living in a communist state where you feel that you know you could be watched or if you repeat something that your your parents say to the wrong person as a child you know you repeat everything so having that hanging over you like you could repeat the wrong thing and your, your parents could be taken away yeah um, it's quite a sort of that's the dark side of it how important is food to polish and to their national identity Oh, gosh, I think it's um, very, very important. I, I, to be honest, I would expect it's important to every country's national identity in one way or another. I'm looking into it right now because um, I'm working on a PhD uh, in food-related kind of studies and identity. And obviously, national identity is the, is the main one I look at because that's probably the most important identity to people. Um, as some people say, you know, there's the identity, of, you know, people can die over and die for and you know they're quite sensitive about so I think 
it's it is very important and I can see how how some people can be sort of very up in arms about um, having certain recipes changed so they're not quite as traditional and they feel very kind of <laughs> annoyed sometimes you know Polska and while it's quite a traditional cookbook in the west and Poland it was seen as quite revolutionary because I would sometimes replace an ingredient here and there and to make it more accessible which I thought was which I do think is actually more important than keeping to stick to very strict sort of recipes and traditions and and of course every family has got different traditions anyway so so I think food is something that develops and it's better for it to be uh, developing and loved and cooked than just to be kind of stuck. But on the other hand, I can see why people feel so strongly about it because it's such a big part of their national identity. It's something that every single person has and does and has a history with. So in a vacuum, if you could explain, I know it's always difficult to have these kind of explanations, but briefly, if someone just, you know, lands in Poland or someone just talks with you, uh, how would you describe Polish food? I would describe it as uh, seasonal, very, very seasonal. Um, there are certain things that you only eat for a couple of months a year, for example, like the botvinka soup my grandma used to make, which is made from beet stalks and very, very young beetroot. You only get those really young beetroots sort of in the springtime at a certain time, around now, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then in the summer, for example, you would get uh, the cold beet soup, uh, hodnik, which you wouldn't eat in the winter time in the winter time you would get things like bigos the sauerkraut stew um so i i think seasonality is a very very strong aspect to polish food i would say the sour taste the taste of sourness is a very strong aspect as well the fermented things which are becoming so trendy around the world now because we what well, we're discovering all does that make you, does that make you upset you'd be like really just now We've been doing this for ages. No, I love it. I love it because I love finding out about the cementing traditions of other <laughs> of other cultures and that wouldn't be available to me. Uh, so I, I think it's wonderful that science has finally caught up and you yeah. can see that the benefits of it. But of course, in East European tr- uh, culture, it's very, you know, it's been a tradition for uh, for many years. And now they're becoming you know, more proud of it maybe than they were because of this whole trend. So that sour- sourness, definitely. Let me think if there's anything else that I would... It's kind of difficult because I know a lot of people would sort of say uh, meat and potatoes and things like that. And I mm-hmm. think that's the kind of um, misconception that was hanging over East European food for a very long time. Maybe it's not even a misconception because really after communism and during communism, if you went out to a restaurant, if you were a foreigner and you came to Poland and you went, that, that's what you would get because... You'd have to go to someone's home to see how people really ate. Yeah, um, that's all completely changing now. You know, the restaurants are, are flourishing all over Poland and the Baltic states, which I've been to recently as well. And um, and I think we're kind of rediscovering our own identities in that part of the world through food. So there's a very very sort of strong connection there. Where has Polish food for you had the largest influence outside of Poland? I think America, probably, because there are 
over 10 million people of Polish heritage in America. I mean, in a really funny way, because I see things like um, pierogi tacos on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very American, yes. (laughs) Um, You know, yeah. Have you you tried one? Lasagna. No, no, I'd love to. You know what? I would actually love to, just because it's like, uh, you know, like the fried Mars bar in England or something. It's like something that, you know, you want to try at least once. (laughs) (laughs) pierogi lasagna and pierogi tacos and i mean gosh my agent's always sending me <laughs> yeah that's, in, that's yeah, very pierogi american pizza, pierogi pizza. Yeah. <laughs> what was the idea behind oh what's the idea in general behind your supper club uh, a slavic table tale sorry not table. yes no problem i guess yeah the tale is kind of uh, the storytelling aspect of it so um even though I felt a little bit nervous at first standing up in front of everyone and interrupting their meal and kind of telling them a little bit about it. Actually, that was really well received as well. So there was, there's always an element of kind of talking about it a little bit as well. So people kind of understand what they're eating Um, and really just a deeper understanding of Polish and stroke Slavic food. Um, It's also a vegetarian supper club. I'm not vegetarian myself. um, And I did that for various reasons. One to um, move away from that meat and potatoes uh, reputation and into something else. And um, two, because I love vegetarian food and I feel like um, that kind of extra limitation helps me creatively to sort of, uh, it sort of inspires me to try various different ingredients and things. And three, also for hygiene purposes, because there's no kitchen in the, in the place where I have the, the supper club. So I have to cook everything, transport it. And it's just much easier if you're dealing with vegetables. Yeah. What was the most surprising fact uh, you learn while doing the research for your new book, Amber and Rye? Oh, gosh, the most surprising fact. Well, I think the most surprising fact was that I actually have Baltic heritage. <laughs> that, was the okay. real, that was the real surprise for me. <laughs> I don't know if you know that uh, story. No, I didn't know that. Oh, right. Well, um, yeah, I was sort of looking into when I was researching uh, the Baltics because I knew they were were having a food renaissance just as in Poland. And I love that whole new energy, you know, like we finally got over the communist hangover and we're like rediscovering what it is that makes us us and coming out of its shell. And it's, it's, it's a very exciting time. But also at the same time, my dad uh, was gifted a DNA test for Christmas my brother gave it to him and we found out he was half bold and that was a, it was a big surprise I mean my grandma came from Lithuania but she always maintained she came from a Polish family and so I started digging around deeper and I found out that um, that basically uh, many people who were sort of ex- expatriated expatriated from Poland to um, uh, sorry from Lithuania and the Baltic states to you know to where they came from apparently didn't actually come from from that area she was actually ethnically Lithuanian but because uh, Lithuania and Poland were a country for so many years uh, many people who were ethnically Lithuanian actually felt Polish so okay. um, that was a very surprising thing and we were also always kind of wondering because you know she didn't have a particularly Polish surname and um, I did ask her where did she come from originally in Poland and she was like no no we never came from this is where we came you know it it seemed like sort of like this sort of mystery and that was uh that was a very surprising fact and it kind of spurred me to to delve even deeper and really that was part of building the momentum for me writing that book so how writing this book was different than the first book it's very interesting because in both of the books 
there is an exploration of heritage and identity in a way. Polska is more sort of my childhood, whereas Amber and Rye, it's kind of like my sort of ancestral identity in a way. So I did feel very tied to certain to certain areas when I was traveling around the Baltics. And it was, I've never been there before. Um, I'd been to the Baltic coast in Poland and I loved it. And that was another reason why I really liked, I wanted to move further along the Baltic coast. And gosh, there were many surprises along the way because actually the, the further um, away from Poland you get, the more different the people and the food is. For example, Estonia, there was, there was lots of kind of little foodie surprises and things as well along the way. So Amber and Rye, I guess, was more of a journey of discovery because we were traveling um, through Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia and meeting people and, um, you know, food producers and sort of foodie contacts and talking to people. And it was it was a discovery, whereas um, Polska was more kind of returning to my childhood. Yeah. I did. I did go to actually. As a side note, that's not very interesting, but it is for me. I did went to. I went to Estonia. I don't know, twelve, thirteen years ago, probably oh, longer. Than and I loved it because it probably was ignorance for me because I didn't have any expectations whatsoever. And you know, but I spent a week there, and then I spent like I spent like two days in Riga, but then basically a whole week in Tallinn, and it was surprisingly very nice. I was like, oh, you know what? It's because it's something, I don't know, I never thought about like, oh, I'm going to Estonia one day. But I was very, very pleasantly surprised. It was a very nice country actually to visit. When when was that? What year was that in? This was probably 2009. Ah, interesting. interesting. Probably something like that. I guess yeah. it was, um, was the kind of like food renaissance underway then or not yet? What I remember, yeah, I feel like 12 years ago was 30. I remember one of the <laughs> things I remember, you know, they used to have those little... These girls used to have the, these uh, dresses, uh, like from kind of like Renaissance kind of vibe, and they will make yeah. these like nuts, you know, yeah. spicy nuts with orange. They still and, do that. They still yeah. do that. So, <laughs> and that's delicious. It's really like you find yeah. it all over the place. It's delicious. I just remember overall it was a very nice surprise. So it's it's kind of a good reference because I never thought I'll go to that side of Europe, and I was very happy, surprised by it. Yeah. Estonians are very cool as well, aren't they? They're yeah, it was definitely, I mean, we were there with a bunch of uh, people from different countries, especially because, you know, they're all studying. And I kind of got in the group uh, with them. But it was, yeah, it was a really nice country to, to visit. I, I, I have to go back. I'm sure it changed somehow in 12 years, 13 years. So do you ever envision opening a restaurant focused on the type of food you grew up with? Well, a supper club is so much work. <laughs> and as much as I love doing it, and I haven't, I haven't actually done it for a couple of years. So now I'm sort of probably looking at it in rose tinted glasses and <laughs> wanting to do it so much. And then yeah. there's always moments when I'm doing it where I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? You know, my, the first supper club I did, my, my fridge broke. Perfect. It was, <laughs> it was so hot outside and I, I couldn't even sort it out because I was so stressed. My partner had to sort of talk to people and try and get a fridge. Um, which he did. <laughs> You're doing now on the 24th, right? Or no? Am I am I wrong? The no, 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 um, no. Okay. I'm still. I don't. I feel like I'm still not quite ready because um the place I do it is a flower shop and it's tiny. Okay. But it's not great for COVID restrictions. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so in terms of a restaurant, I think you know somewhere I kind of feel like if I was really rich, 
I would love to own a restaurant. <laughs> you know what? You know what, Olia, Olio Hercules, Hercules. She told me she was like, "Well, if someone had a lot of money invest, I will just go there and cook." So, and and if I even said, "Okay, for someone listening has a lot of money, someone who wants to buy a restaurant for Olia, she will have one." Then <laughs> yeah. that was her answer. Whereas <laughs> I'm like, okay, if I have lots of money, then um, <laughs> okay, and uh, I can cook maybe once a week. <laughs> that would be yeah, perfect. Just casual, okay, just once a week. <laughs> Okay, uh, so shifting the conversation a little bit, imagine you can go to a, a desert island. Well, the, yeah. uh, the island can be desert for you. Do you have an island that you really like? Do you know any island on top of your oh, head? Oh, yes, Sardinia. It's probably Sardinia. my favorite Imagine Sardinia just for you and for your loved ones. You can take your partner, you can take the kids. Okay, just, you, gotta, you have to take with you a protein, a veggie, a, a fruit, and a dessert. What do you take? Am I allowed the stuff that's on the island already? <laughs> I mean, the idea is to imagine that we don't know what that island has, right? Okay, I see, I see, I see. So basically, like, there's you're no not going to get any ice cream, okay? And you're not, yeah. that isn't, okay. <laughs> None of that. No, you're getting a pasta down the road. No. You, so what's the protein you take? <laughs> um, the protein I would take would be fish. Just, I mean, does it have to be any can particular? Be a little more fish? specific, because. <laughs> Just all the fish in the sea. <laughs> okay, yeah. Can we go a little more narrow the filter here? So fish, what kind of fish? Um, oh, gosh. Oh, you've got me there. It's tricky. It's tricky because, you know. Maybe think of fish that you can do very versatile things. I don't know. It's easier. You can do it raw. It would be a, some kind of white fish, I okay. think. Yeah, some kind of white fish because then I can do many things with it. I can even have it, you know. I can freeze it and have it kind of like frozen. I can fry it. I can even do sashimi with, you know, I can do yep. various things with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's not quite narrow, but I'll, I'll get, I'll take that answer. So a white <laughs> fish. Okay. And a veggie. Uh, a veggie. I think, I don't know. I keep thinking about an aubergine. So I'm just going to go with that okay. again. Very versatile. Okay. I like egg, that's egg planned for American listeners, just in case. Okay. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. That's no, I'm fair. joking. I'm joking. No, it's true. Aubergine eggplant. Yeah. Oh, eggplant. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, it. Okay, eggplant. <laughs> uh, one fruit. One fruit. Um... You can say a fruit salad. So you can take, <laughs> so you can take various fruits. <laughs> um, well, if I could, if I had to just be one fruit, watermelon or straw, no, strawberry, strawberry. How do you say strawberry in Polish? Truskawka. That's what I thought. Just okay. How do you, uh, desserts? Dessert ice cream, pistachio. Pistachio ice cream. Okay. So see, <laughs> next time you go to Sardinia, just think about these things. Um, <laughs> what was your first memory of taste? I think probably it was something like kashamanana, uh, which is semolina porridge. Okay. And we eat for breakfast, and my mum makes it a lot. So that feels like a taste that kind of is one of those childhood tastes and I always come back to it. Um, but very close to, very close second would be rosu, which is chicken soup. Okay. The clear chicken broth that we get. And I ate so much of this that actually I couldn't eat it from a few years, maybe about 10, 15 years. I, I didn't want to eat it anymore because I just felt like it was given to me constantly as a child. Yeah. And now I've, I've rediscovered my love for it. <laughs> okay. Most underrated ingredient for you? Underrated ingredient. Herring. Okay. I feel like the herring's had a bit of a bad reputation. 
in my first cookbook when I was publishing it and people didn't know that much about Polish food at that point. It was the, the landscape was a little bit different, even though it was only, you know, seven years ago or something. And, you know, I was told don't put too many herrings in it. And, and now in this cookbook, I was free to do a lot of herring dishes and my publisher was saying, Oh, I love all the herrings. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I'm hoping the, the landscape and things are changing for the humble herring. <laughs> the overrated ingredient for you overrated ingredient uh, I would say the really posh caviar because I really love all the kind of local caviars that people are coming up with you know from the different countries I don't think it has to be the really expensive stuff and anything that's really like too too expensive and exclusive I think it's just that's so, not don't you thing. think more and more we are going away from that I I feel uh, I would hope so Yeah. yeah. Even, but even restaurants, you know, I, I, I want to believe my generation, you know, as you know, we're pretty much the same generation, even people a little younger than us. I don't think people can, especially, you know, I think COVID changed a lot, but I can, and I talk with some chefs here about that. I don't understand how it can be sustainable that you are going to charge $400 per person. Yeah. Because it just becomes, a, I always thought it was weird having restaurants that you only do for 1% of people. Does it make sense? I think that's just so exactly. bizarre to me. I mean, I, I understand that they have the creativity, the creativity, and they can do whatever they want. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a food experience and a journey and all of that. But I always thought it was very difficult. Like, okay, I'm building this restaurant, literally 1% can go. Yeah, I really don't like that. And what I found about sort of some restaurants in the Baltic states is that you could get even though the Baltic states were not, were not a cheap place to go um, by any stretch of the imagination. And yet you could get very beautiful meals and high class restaurants that were like a piece of art and for a, a very good price. Uoxas is, was my favorite. That was in Kaunas in Lithuania. And I would say it's, it's worth going to, I mean, there's many reasons you could go to Kaunas because it's a great place, but just to go to that restaurant would be a good, um, would be a good enough reason because you can get that kind of experience and it's accessible for everyone because they're doing it for different reasons. It's for, you know, the love of, um, you know, rediscovering these amazing ingredients and showing something of their heritage. And it's, it's, what's the best breakfast you can have? Oh gosh, I'm a real breakfast person. And um, it's very difficult for me to decide because I love so many breakfast foods um, my favorite after the Baltic States has to be a really good um, fluffy sirniki, which are curd cheese pancakes. Mm -hmm. I've got really into those. Okay. Um, I've got a recipe in my book, which is sirniki. And um, in, one, in one place, I had this sort of uh, chocolate buckwheat and a kind of, you know, fried chocolate buckwheat on top. So I've, I've sort of developed my own recipe for this and then some berries on the side. Okay. And then a good. That sounds good. What is the strangest combination food-wise some people might do that you just cannot accept when they put two, three ingredients together or, and mm -hmm. depends how you want to answer, mm -hmm. something that you do that people look at you and be like, really, Zuzu, you got to do this? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, funny because actually uh, one of my best friends 
uh, Jay always looks at all my ferments. <laughs> and it's like, really, though, mm-hmm. you know, he's um, he comes from Hong Kong, so he's very open minded. And yet somehow he can't quite get his head around the, the fermentation. <laughs> okay. And some combination that people do two or three ingredients together that you just like now. Well, I've heard that people do kind of um, uh, kind of pierogi, like pierogi tacos. Yes. Yes. Those <laughs> things. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say no, because I, I want to be open enough minded just to try and <laughs> just to try it and to taste it before I say no. Yeah. Um, because who knows sometimes those things might just taste really awesome even though they look a bit oh <laughs> i can give you i can Great. just give you two three examples that i've said here many times but um yeah. someone told me popcorn in tomato soup oh no i wouldn't be against that no i wouldn't be against okay, that okay so, so you know tonight you try that you make some good soup <laughs> you make good tomato soup just put some popcorn <laughs> and then you text me how does that taste like someone told me a coleslaw sandwich Oh, no, my partner puts coleslaw in sandwiches a lot with cheese and other things. Okay. Okay. So um, what else was something? There's all, there's always the mayo and banana sandwich. There's also that. Oh, no. Mayo and banana. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. Okay. We got um, that one then. No, uh, I really couldn't. Just, <laughs> I couldn't. Some, just some ideas. Just some ideas. That one. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit kind of iffy about, I heard that recently there's a trend of kind of uh, frying eggs in coconut oil. I, I'm not sure about that one. Even though I love eggs with dates and tahini scrambled eggs with dates and teeny is awesome so then i think well maybe it's just a step away from that but i find it a little gross the, the, <laughs> the name of the podcast is turning chickens and breaking dishes those are actually two portuguese phrases turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations do you think you'd be turning more chickens or breaking more dishes Uh, I think turning chickens okay. for me because I feel like I'm learning all the time. Okay. And, you know, with this whole PhD thing, that's like a whole new level of thinking about food. And and I think I'm just one of those people that's always going to be learning. You know, it's kind of um, it's difficult sometimes because someone said to me, oh, you know, you're an expert. You should call yourself an expert. And I feel like, well, I just feel like I have so much to learn. I don't know if I'll ever call myself yeah. an expert. At the end of the podcast, I always tell my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if someone tells to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. Yeah. You know, where people can find you. The book is coming out. So, you know, just just sell your fish. Brilliant. Well, Amber and Rye is coming out uh, with Murdoch Books in England on the 10th of June. And in America, it's going to be with Interlink Books. And uh, that's going to be at the beginning of September. Uh, but I think it's on pre-order already. You can find me on Instagram at Zuzazak Cooks. I'm on there a lot. I love the whole community there. And uh, Zuzazak.com is my website and my blog. Perfect. Well, Zuzza, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I think there's a, I think there's a beautiful trend of some people that are bringing the Eastern Europe foods to a to the spotlights, you know. And I was super proud to talk with Olia, and I was super proud to talk with Alyssa Timoshkina as well. She was here. I love here. those two girls. Yeah. I'm meeting up with them soon, actually. Yeah, and uh, say hi for me. Potential mutual projects. 
So I, I can see that. I can see because I know I actually Aaliyah, she she even she wrote something for your book, right? In, in on the cover. So yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. they both did actually. They're but they're so supportive. They're really wonderful. They, they so I think the three of you it's one of those examples. You are elevating Eastern foods and um and I, I really like it. So I'm very proud to have the three of you already on the podcast. So see that's a that's a home run for me. So but thank you. Thank you very much. I know it's a little hectic with the kids, so I appreciate it. Thank you and... so much. That was my absolute pleasure. And no. thank you for having me on. Thank you. Before you go, super important. Yeah. What's for dinner tonight? Do you know? Uh, yes. Today, it's kind of like a finishing things off day. So we're having uh, noodles, which I've already cooked. And they're like waiting to be stir fried with lots of uh, seasonal wild mushrooms and peppers and just kind of one of those stir fries with anything that's in the fridge. Perfect. Super quick meal. And don't forget, if you ever want, just go for a pure yogi taco. You know, you know, <laughs> it, might, it might be good. We never I've know. I've got to try one one time, but I, got, I think I need to go to America for that. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. But thank you very much, Susan. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Zuza, for coming on the podcast. It was a true, true pleasure to speak with her. So, you know, go buy her book, the previous book, the new book, all the books, you know, just just a party for everyone when it comes to books. Don't forget to follow on Instagram, the Facebook. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. Follow the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. And if you want to send me an email, you can do so to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com make sure you subscribe to the podcast on any platform you have access to leave a review leave a comment saying how awesome it is or not but just leave the awesome part that's good also if you want to support this podcast you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash d martins i'll come back next week stay safe be happy adios